so they can just go, oh, I didn't realize that if I just got 10 minutes of sun, then I would actually get much better results. I mean, it's fascinating, this stuff, because, you know, their new hospital in Adelaide, which replaced the rural Adelaide hospitals, was intentionally designed with ridges, you know, in and out, like a wave, uh, because they they accepted the science that built environment matters um, and that, you know, pe- if people can get sun into their room, mm-hmm. they get better and the evidence shows that. Welcome to Junior Doctors Corner, the podcast that helps medical students and junior doctors like yourself not only survive but thrive in your careers. We cover topics including doctor well-being, career and life outside of medicine. My name is Dana and I am your host for this podcast. Are you ready for a healthy dose of support, motivation and inspiration? Then let's start this episode stat. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Junior Doctor's Corner. I am Dana, your host for today's episode. If you hear some loud thumping music in the background, I do apologize on my neighbor's behalf. They're having a massive party. Anyway, I know that I usually don't put any snippets or sneak peeks at the start of my podcast episodes, but I thought I might give that a try again because I did that with the episode with Dr. Izzy Smith and no one seemed to have complained. So I thought it might be nice for you guys to get a little teaser or taste before we dive into the meaty bits. Also, I just got an email recently with a medical student who's interested to come on board to help out with the podcast. I'm really excited. Um, If there's anyone else listening who's interested to contribute in any way, you know, it can be contributing to the blog, which I'm trying to get off the ground, uh, or even the podcast itself, or, you know, anything else, please, please get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. We love all the help we can get with spreading the word and, of course, creating content. And as usual, I would really appreciate it if you enjoy this podcast episode, please head over to iTunes and write us a review. It really helps us get onto the uh, podcast charts and that way uh, more people will know about this podcast. In this episode, I interview the awesome Dr. Sam Manger and we talk about lifestyle medicine, what it is, why is it relevant and how do we actually do it? So it's an interest of mine, and I'm sure those of you who have been fascinated by the idea of preventative medicine or, you know, um, managing patients through conservative or lifestyle type management, you would certainly find this podcast episode really useful and really interesting. So I hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. Hi, Dr. Sam Manger. Thank you so much for joining me on Junior Doctor's Corner. Hello, Dana. Thanks for having me. Now, can you please, for those of our listeners who haven't heard of you or haven't come across your podcast, The DP Show, which is absolutely amazing, um, and also some other Mm. things which I'm sure you'll go into, can you please tell us a bit about yourself? Thanks. That's a kind uh, intro. And yeah, nice to be here. Plenty of stuff for them to catch up on. Lots of episodes there. And I'm sure that most would not have heard of it. But uh, <laughs> that's, that's, let's, hope we, let's hope a few people do from now on. Uh, so yeah, I'm a GP. I've been a GP for about eight years and uh, I trained as a rural GP in South Australia. I sort of did 
my undergrad and I sort of worked in a gym there and sort of, you know, did various things. Well, throughout my GP training, I was running a film festival actually on the side as a pro bono thing. And it was a sort of sustainability film festival. So I was always kind of busy. And then when I finished my GP training, I felt like I wanted to, you know, do more and expand and what was the next challenge and that sort of stuff, which I'm sure you were going to come up to soon. And you kind of have a break after you finish your fellowship and for six months and then you start going, hmm, you know, what now? So I started, you know, thinking and um, I essentially like, you know, X years later, I am now involved in many things. So I sort of do two threes in gen- two days in general practice. I'm a medical educator with a GP organization, JCU GP training. And then uh, I run a podcast and done that for the last two years for health professionals. So GPs and me- other medical specialists, um, you know, med students and uh, dietitians, EPs, et cetera. Uh, and I've got a website there, which I've just slowly been building resources on the side. And then I'm president of the Society of Lifestyle Medicine, which is a fairly young organization. Um, and that's really where my passion lies is the sort of lifestyle interventions, health coaching, behavior change, changing models of care, how we deliver care. I suppose health system change, you know, big picture sort of stuff. And and then I research. So I work at a neuroscience institute here on the coast one day a week and we do the research on you know, neurosciencey things. Yeah, so I'm sort of, we're a different day, I'm at different places, but that's the beauty of, we would like we were just talking about before, you know, when you finish your training, you can start to make the life you always intended on making. I mean, I have, a, I have med students with me most weeks um, and obviously I look after GP registrars and I often say, look, don't worry, no one did medicine to become an intern. It's like, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not great. Uh, and, you know, but it, do, it doesn't last forever. And um, you, you got to learn what you got to learn. You got to save lives. That's what medicine and internship is all about, learning how to save people's lives. But now you get into a light point where you go, okay, now how do I improve lives? How do I not just prevent death, but how do I optimize how do I improve and then how and then you start to question how do you improve the system with which you work in and the system with which they live in um and then you can go down that rabbit hole as far as you feel necessary or desirable to go down I have to say though when I was an intern it did not feel like I was learning how to save lives it felt more like I was learning how to do a lot of paperwork (laughs) yeah yeah but you know you were I mean you know like I remember my first um day on the med ward Oh, I was so scared. And am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Because I would be right <laughs> yeah. now. And the, and, um, and the nurse came up and said, have you got, we got a person in bed, whatever, 17 with chest pain. I thought, oh my God, differentials. Uh, <laughs> me, uh, my, you know, and I was just like in my head. And I was yeah. just, you know, but now it's just, you know, I mean, I'm probably going to get a horrible chest pain tomorrow. Turn up, so you know, knock on wood. But, you know, now it's much more comfortable. But you, you're in hospital, people are on that edge. You know, they're on, they're acutely unwell, which is why they're in hospital as a general rule. And, um, that's what it is. And you, and you learn that and you learn that well, but, um, and that's incredibly important, but most people these days die or suffer from non-acute disorders. The times have changed and, and that's, and that doesn't mean what we learn isn't important is incredibly important, but, um, it does mean that, well, maybe that there's more research, there's more science, there's more complexity and the stats bear that out. It's not like I'm being, you know, oh, it's harder for us than it was for the last generation. It was hard for them too. But in the sense of it, the stats bear it out that the complex medicine is increasing, uh, patient demands, patient complexity, numbers of patients, requirement for investigations, number of tests, number of differentials, number of management options, all these things are hmm. you know, exponentially increasing in every way. So it does feel, and I feel for, um, well, all of us, I suppose, that it's, a, it's an ever 
it's a rapidly growing field and patients now more than ever with the internet have their own opinions on what's going on. Mm. So it's, it's, um, it's interesting time to be part of healthcare. And in fact, it's a real privilege because this is, a, this is something we could really change for the better. I couldn't agree with you more there. Now, I know in your intro, you did kind of try to squeeze in a bit of um, information about what lifestyle medicine mm. is. So can you please explain to us? Because when I went through medical school, I never came across such terms. And um, certainly we were taught very little about how to actually address sort of lifestyle modifications or changes you know how to actually um treat patients with those things it's just the tell your patients to exercise and eat well end of story so mm. can you please tell us a bit more about it yeah well that's the really disappointing part you know what i mean that that happens and it continues to happen and again the evidence bears that out i mean there's been a number of decent papers on this demonstrating that the number of hours dedicated to this in med school is embarrassing and uh, so it's not me being critical and whatever. That's just the fact. In a way, it's simple but not easy. And the, but the science is is kind of complex too in its own way. So, so lifestyle medicine essentially the, the use of lifestyle interventions. So food, movement, stress, substance abuse reduction, sleep, um, connection with each other, connection with nature or the natural world, combined with health coaching techniques, behavior change techniques and methodologies and changing models of care so that you can change the way you actually um, apply those things, support people ongoing. And then, you know, there's also research because there's obviously more, there's always more research that's necessary, more high quality or more diverse research that's necessary. You know, this is a fruitful area if anyone's interested in it because, you know, it's not a week goes by and I'm not being vain when I say this, but that, you know, major entities contact me because they want their business to go in the direction of lifestyle medicine. You know, they, they can for their employees or for the patient cohorts that they have or whatever, right? So um, this is the way we're going and the public want it and the evidence is there. So I don't see why it shouldn't go there. And so obviously there are other places it goes and there's many things happening in medicine, but I'm just talking about this one area. So, and the evidence is, you know, strong. There's been, in the last five years, there's been, a, and this was before that, but in the last five years, there's been a lot of good evidence, uh, you know, major randomized controlled trials, uh, meta-analytic sort of level evidence. Um, and so, you know, you take diabetes, for example. Well, you know, the, the direct trial, which was done in um, England, showed that 80% of people with type 2 diabetes who were diagnosed in the last six years is reversible. Not treatable mm. with medication, reversible with diet alone. So that doesn't even mean exercise and all the other stuff we just mentioned. And that's that's efficacy in real-world effectiveness is 46%. And the reason that's is 46% of people over in the trial. But those who lost more than 15 kilos, 80%. That's um, not taught in med school, nor is it taught how to do that in med school. How mm. do you get people to what, – what is it that you have to get them to eat? It's not just healthy eating because the guidelines – do not reverse diabetes. Um, it, it's a much more intensive, what's called medical nutrition therapy. And so you have to know what you're talking about. Not only do you have to know what you're talking about, what you're recommending as a prescription, inverted commas, you have to know how to support that person because that's not necessarily easy to do. That person's health knowledge or health literacy could be very low. It could be their motivation. It could be social barriers. It yep. could be whatever, right? Religious things, cultural things. So there's, there's a great art in it as well as the science and then you that's physical there's also mental health disorders i mean the work of professor fleece jacker at deacon has shown that 30 in randomized control trials 32 percent of depression goes into remission i'm talking moderate to severe depression not mild depression moderate to severe depression which is those who understand that is a extremely severe disorder um 32 percent go into remission with diet alone 
and that's similar with exercise. And, um, and so if you combine good, well, eating well and exercise with a good sleep and a bit of psychotherapy, you know, that's probably, I'm just throwing it out in part because no one's done a compilation trial like that, so I wouldn't actually know. But, you know, you would probably guess that 60 to 70, maybe 80% of people would have a resolution of their depression. So you've massively reduced the need for medication, which our system is largely dependent on. Yep. And medication, I mean, I could talk for hours, obviously. <laughs> but, you know, medication is uh, the number of antidepressant prescriptions in the last 10 years has doubled. Hmm. And in the last six months because of COVID, it's gone up, I think, 20%. So this is disgusting, really, and and when it's unnecessary, um, but it's just because we're we don't have money, we don't have time, we don't have training, um, we're not we're not responding to people in in this way. I think what I would call best practice medicine. Well, I guess also maybe you know we've come from previous generations where they had medications like Zoloft advertised to them and, you know, people got used to the idea that, oh, if I am feeling down, I should be popping a pill. And mm. oh, I cannot count how many patients I've had who have come in and said, give me something. And I had to go, wait a minute, tell me your story first. We need to work out what's going on. Um, whilst medications definitely have their place, we need to work out if they have a place uh, or a role in your, you know, mental health, whether it's going to be beneficial for you. So, yeah, I, I completely agree with yeah, you. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting, right? And you're right that it is everyone's responsibility. So it sounds like I'm critically appraising the medical specialty, which I am because that's kind of who's listening. But the, but the public, you know, are also um, liable for what's happening. Um, and so is industry. I mean, industry is responsible for this. I mean, you know, the advertising, not just from... Uh, food companies, Coca-Cola, McDonald's, you know, like a whole way of life. You know, we sit in cars and drive to work. We sit in an office and stay still. We're, we're told that work matters, work matters, achievement, achievement, social media. We stay up at night late trying to do these things. Like a whole system is is sort of culpable. Mm. Um, and then the pharmaceutical industry does lobby. We know that for a fact. We know that it it tries to get its meds prescribed. It's a business. And I, again, I sound conspiratorial, but these are just the nature of the beast that we're dealing with. And so, you know, everyone suffers from that pressure. So it's not, it's not just doctors. We're kind of all in this together. And so it's a question, okay, what do we do? You know, so what, how, how do we manage the situation? And well, most listeners, I assume are doctors or, or health professionals. And so I think we can just do what we can do in our circles and mm. influence where we can influence. And, your approach sounds excellent. You know, yep, well, okay, that's great. Not taking that off the table. But maybe if I explain this and this and this, we might you might be interested in other options. And when I actually explain the pathophysiology of depression, which no one understands, then, you know, you, you might change your view about the role of antidepressants here. And again, as you say, they've got a role, no doubt about it, but it's not as often as is believed. Now, you probably have already um, answered my next question, but I just wanted to flesh it out a bit more. And especially like on your podcast, The GP Show, you like to ask your guests to um, give some really practical tips. So this is what I'm hoping to achieve with this question. Can you give us an example? And you did use diabetes earlier of how the lifestyle medicine can be applied to our daily clinical work maybe in particular could you give some tips to junior doctors I know it can be really hard because most junior doctors are working in a hospital setting mm. uh, but I'd like to think that we could at the very least equip them with some tips or knowledge so that they can already get something started with their patients 
um, before they even um, head their way back to their GPs mm. to continue the work. Mm. Yeah. Well, look, I think there's there's sort of a lot, but as you say, that junior doctors, like I don't have many, I'll be honest, I don't have any expectations for them to do except what they're already doing because the work is so busy. Like your, your learning curve is so steep, um, not just from a knowledge point of view, but a skill point of view in the sense of these drips and NG tubes and all that sort of stuff, right? But then also just the system and the sleep and the 90-hour weeks and the sleeping on the floor. I mean, you know, life, they, they need to prioritize their own lifestyle, to be honest. That's, that's, that's probably the most important thing because keep themselves healthy, don't burn out and become jaded because it's when you burn out and become jaded that you start going, there's no point in doing any of that. And so, but if you experience it firsthand, you're going to be much more like, that's how I got into this. I mean, I got into lifestyle medicine because of my own health challenges and my, like pretty much like medicine's very good at ruling out life-threatening things. Right. So, you know, you got a stomach problem, you got a lung problem, you got a anxiety problem. We'll scan you, we'll scope you, we'll bleed you. And, um, you know, you're not, you got, haven't got cancer. Okay, great. So what is it? What do I do? Oh, I don't, no, no, no. That's, that's, I don't know what you do now. I'm just saying you're not going to die from it. And so, you know, that, that's what happened to me. And so I was like, yeah, but I'm really suffering here. Um, it's having a major impact on my life and et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, you just, start taking care of yourself as, as basic as that sounds and noticing the rhythms and noticing the changes and noticing what changes. Um, and, and I've, you know, it's, it's a life journey. Like I still haven't mastered my own health by any means, but it's so, so I would just think, you know, it, it's the usual stuff, right? The advice is fairly simple as a general rule. And there's two ways to think of lifestyle medicine, prevention and treatment. And so if you're preventing illness, it's a lot easier than treating illness. And so if you're treating diabetes or, um, you know, mental health disorders or you know, Alzheimer's to slow it down or, you know, and any number of things that you can use lifestyle medicine for, that the intervention is usually more intensive than, than, the, um, than the prevention. So when it, when it comes to uh, what junior doctors, I suppose, can do, um, you know, for themselves, like I said, look after themselves. So sleep well, try and, I know it's hard, but if you can, eight hours, you know, eat whole food, avoid processed crap. And I know that's hard because you're buggered and you just want to shove some chips down your gob. But, you know, try, just try. And it's okay, you're young, you'll survive it anyways. It doesn't matter too much. But the, um, but the, more, you, the more you practice these things, like what got me through my intern year, apart from my wife and my dogs, was gardening. And um, the, I had a veggie patch when I, I worked in South Australia at Flinders. Uh, so shout out for those down there. The, um, and I had a, a veggie patch that I would pretty much go to as soon as I got home, assuming it was a morning, you know, night shift. I'd just walk out and just had just an hour or half an hour in the veggie patch, tend to things. And that was movement and it was fresh air and it was sun and it was met mindfulness in its own way. You know, you're not thinking about work and you, it was a reward because you're tr- taking care of things, you're treating things. Um, it, you know, I ate the produce, obviously it was good for me. Um, it was connection with nature and all of these things I have evidence for, and I could spend hours and I do, you know, lecture on this about the, the, how these things actually, what are the biological mechanisms through the, which these work? I mean, take food, for example, some foods are inflammatory and some aren't refined mm. carbohydrates are very inflammatory. Refined meat is very inflammatory. Mm. Vegetables are anti-inflammatory mm. uh, and different components have different things. I mean, cruciferous vegetables have sulfurphuranes, which are mm. anti-inflammatory. Blueberries have anthocyanins, which are inflammatory for the X conditions. These work on the sort of COX-2 and blah, blah, blah. So they act similar to the medications we prescribe. Um, sleep. I mean, sleep is fascinating because 
we don't know a lot about it, but you know, what we do know is fascinating. And, you know, there's a system called the glymphatic system, like our lymphatic system in the brain. And its job is to essentially clean into neural networks and, and the brain region. It's, it's the microglia uh, assist in this process too. And microglia are like the immune cells of our brain. And they can change phenotype in one and two, depending on um, your whole body health, because they pick up on systemic inflammation and things like sleep. So when you sleep, these systems, the lymphatic system, switches on and it starts cleaning your brain, but it really only switches on when you're asleep. So, you know, you, people say, I can go by with four hours a night. Yeah, you can probably because you're young and you're just, you know, mm. passionate. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. But it will cause damage and it is causing damage and you don't realize how much damage it's causing to your patient care potentially. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, so that's, that's, that's that, right? And then as far as... Um, you know, in their hospital time, well, like I said, I don't really expect them to do anything else except look after themselves. But if they really wanted to, mm. um, then simply educating patients on the basics, uh, taking even five minutes to do it, patients would appreciate it so much. I mean, I, as a GP, as you are a GP reg, understand that when patients come out of hospital, most of them have no idea why they were there yeah. and no idea what a ward round was and who these 20 people throwing them was. I don't know who my doctor was. It was just one of them sometimes and it wasn't the other person. And they go, I just ate sandwiches and, uh, you know, jello and like just lay there. And so, but the evidence is again, relatively strong, not, not as strong as other parts, but that things like, um, you know, eating a good diet, mon- keeping your sugars um, stable, getting good nutrients from your food, moving early and as safely, um, seeing nature or even being out in nature when you're in hospital, like just seeing a garden. There were some trials done in the 80s that those who could view um, the, a garden or outdoors had a 20% reduction in pain relief requirements and nursing complaints. You know, when you combine all these things, you're going to get quicker wound healing rates, lower infections, more happiness, less you know depression, quicker recoveries, far, faster discharge times, happier patients, and what, and that's why we do medicine, most of us, and so that makes us feel better. So we feel happier about our job, and then we are protected against the burnout and the workload. So, um, you know, th- those simple things make a big difference to to you. The therapist and the patient and it's you end up you know a better relationship as a result and the relationship is the last thing i'd quickly say is just don't be afraid to be curious with your patients you know just have a relationship with them again because that's why we do medicine for the most part not everyone i appreciate but most people and so that will protect you too Mm. Um, a couple of comments I just want to make for the things you've said uh number one so do you as a gp prescribe maybe one hour gardening per week to your patients (laughs) No, I mean, I, I, yes, yes and no. I mean, yes, I prescribe all those things, but like there's two things to say to that. First of all, like my prescriptions are imperfect and incomplete um, and because I'm not as good in real life as I sound on here, right? And that's the truth of it. Like I absolutely am lifestyle focused. I raise it with pretty much every patient and I educate on it. But um, you have 12 to 15 minutes in GP console. And that's the reality of that. And so I space things out, you know, so I do my first appointment is just to, I tell people right away, okay, I'm going to, here's the process. You know, I don't say it's right when I first meet them, but you know, at some point, mm-hmm. um, like I'm here to, you know, rule out life-threatening things. Let's do that first. Okay. And then when we, when we're sure it's safe um, and we've got the, 
there's space, so to speak, to intervene in a lifestyle intervention, then let's do that. If you walk in with a blood pressure of 180, I ain't going to start saying eat flaxseed. I'm going to say, you take this antihypertensive, will you drop dead? So it's, you know, so there, there's a place and a time for these things. Mm. And and it has to be personalized, you know. So some people hate gardening, so I would never recommend an hour of gardening to, to those people. <laughs> okay. um, but, you know, like it's if you ask me to run an hour a day, I'd say no chance. I like I don't really enjoy running. I find it very boring. I like swimming. I like riding. I love doing weights. So, you know, you've got to take a history. And that's, again, what is missing in our training here is that, you know, if someone comes in and sees you with a migraine, you don't say, ah, diagnosis, headache, treatment, Panadol. If you did that, you should fail because that's a terrible doctor. What you say is, okay, you've got a headache, so tell me, some, tell me more about that. You know, how long, how often do you get them? Mm-hmm. How bad are they? What are triggers? What mm-hmm. makes it better? You, know, da, 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 right? you get the whole history. It takes you five, 10 minutes. And then you say, right, okay, I think it's the type of migraine. Mm-hmm. I reckon we should, you're not getting that frequently. So let's try a sumatriptan, mm-hmm. a bit of Maxillon or whatever for neonausea. Let's see how we go. That's proper medicine. And it's the same with lifestyle medicine. You don't just say eat food, you know, eat good food, see you later. Yep. You know, that you have to take a history. What are they eating now? Where, what works for them? What are their cultural preferences? What are their spiritual preferences? What are their blah, 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 you know? What do they like to do? What don't they like to do? Are they shift workers? Are they single moms? You know, like there's so many varieties and variables here that you need to account for when making a recommendation. It's no different. But, you, you know, th- this is the art that you don't get taught. Yeah. And so would you say then... Because uh, although you you are a GP, so that's why a lot of your examples are you know very general practice based. Yeah. Would you say lifestyle medicine for in terms of as an additional uh, learning thing is that any of any use to hospitalists or hospital specialists? Oh, massively. I mean, I'm I'm so so there's the hospital admission itself, which I just mentioned, and oh, I should say actually, I'm I'm. I'm writing a paper on this, so um, and I'm going to probably do a mini course on it. So if any junior doctors want to contact me and get involved, I've got the GPshow.com, uh, collating the evidence for lifestyle interventions in hospital admissions and then actually trying to create a program so that patients can just log on to the website, do the program, and they're not depending on the health system to provide it for them. So it's, And it'll make it free. Um, and so they can just go, oh, I didn't realize that if I got 10 minutes of sun, then I would actually get much better results. I mean, it's fascinating, this stuff, because, you know, the new hospital in Adelaide, which replaced the rural Adelaide hospitals, was intentionally designed with ridges, you know, in and out, like a wave, uh, because they they accepted the science that built environment matters um, and that, you know, pe- if people can get sun into their room, mm-hmm. they get better, and the evidence shows that. So, you know, these things make a difference. And I had a great physician um, when I was an intern who, you know, he came and did this massive, so I was in surgery at the time. So, you know, no offense surgeons, but they don't do any, like they just turf everything to medicine. And the, um, that's, that's medical, obviously. And, and it goes back the other way. So it's, you know, we're, we're all guilty. And they said, I'll get the physician. The physician came along and he came out, he did this big assessment. He goes, so what I want you to do is I want you to wheel her out to the courtyard for 15 minutes every day. I'm like, sorry like did but do we have a script here like what's the what's the plan like he's like that's what i want you to do and i thought okay i told i wrote down the notes told the team no one hasn't time to to do that or at least we didn't prioritize we didn't think it was important and here i am on retrospect obviously wrong and then i saw him uh every day doing it and you know he would go into the patient get a wheelchair take her down he'd make the time 
and he'd take her outside. And, you know, that is admirable care. Yeah. So I suppose that, yes, they can definitely do more in hospitals. And um, that comes down to individual care and system change. And in particular, I really lay that responsibility more on the consultants than I do the junior staff and the registrars because they're just making the hospital run. I mean, the whole public health sector is dependent on junior doctors, let's be honest. So, yes, consultants come in and, you know, give advice and are on call if needed. But so, so I, I think that they're slightly more responsible personally for, for making this change. You know, because of that, um, no one has done what I'm talking about largely. There are, pro- there are certain select programs around the world and, and I commend those. Um, but why don't we just, you know, uh, open source it, so to speak? Hmm. Yep. So certainly uh, very applicable to both general practice and also hospital type practice. Hugely. And like, I mean, most hospitalist specialists are not just public specialists. They're mm. in private practice yep. as well, right? Yes. And so there's those private specialists, cardiologists, endocrinologists, um, you know, and, and all the other specialties, dermatologists, blah, blah, blah. So most specialists are the ones who have a lot of authority, you know, and I'm talking about non-GP specialists, but have a lot of authority with patients. And I'm going to be honest and say that it is definitely the minority, and I'm talking probably single-digit percentage of specialists who I refer to who strongly advocate and recommend lifestyle interventions. Right. They might sort of say it lightly in passing, Mm. and and that might not be that often too, but... You know, so that, that's not acceptable. That's not best practice medicine, especially with the evidence we've got today. Absolutely, they should learn it in hospitals because it needs to inform their future practice. So it sounds like probably it would be a good idea to introduce lifestyle medicine early on, probably at the medical school stage, because mm. I imagine um, a lot of specialists at the moment, they didn't get much exposure when they went through vet school. So they're just thinking, well, this is not my area. I don't know what to say. I'm better off just letting the GP or the nutritionist mm. or dietitian or physio deal with it. Yeah. And they wouldn't be wrong to say that, to be fair on them. Like that, that's why we have dietitians and EPs. And I would never pretend to be a dietitian or EP because those guys are specialists in mm. their right. And the evidence is clear that that exercise delivered by an yep. EP or dietetics delivered by a dietitian is far superior than a GP recommending it. So, mm. it, you know, I don't think anyone can be a, a, a one size fits all. I'm certainly not everything yep. to my patients. So they're not wrong to say that, you know, why have a dog and bark yourself yep. is the same. Yep. Um, but at the same time, you still need to bloody know it. All right. Because yep. it still matters a lot and you still have a role. And we know that brief interventions make a big difference. You know, yep. it's not like, oh, I'm not even going to mention smoking because I'm not going to make him quit today. Like what a silly attitude. So, you know, we rec- we accept that we smoking is one of those things that you just very neatly bring up and that's pretty accepted now. But now it's time to think about that for all the other lifestyle domains. Yeah. So for junior doctors who unfortunately haven't had the exposure to lifestyle medicine or enough of preventative medicine, um, you know, how can they learn more and, you know, how can they obtain a fellowship? Are there specific requirements? Do they have had to have been on a training program for anything in particular? Mm. Yeah. So no, not really. So, right. You can start whenever you want and there's many ways to go about it. There is a, so there's, uh, there is a fellowship of the Society of Lifestyle Medicine called FASLM. Um, and, uh, that, you know, takes a couple of years. It's, you can do it whilst you're in your training program, like your GPs, cardiologists. And we have 
loads of different professionals, nurses, allied health psychologists, GPs, uh, other sort of non-GP specialists, uh, academics, researchers, right? So there's there's loads of different types of FASLMs and then there's training within that. So there's International Board of Lifestyle Medicine exam, there's training modules, et cetera. But, um, and, and we're constantly building those. We're a young society and uh, we're growing quickly and we're building, building content because as you, you know, have said, that this content doesn't really exist or hasn't been formally brought mm. together in a structured way. Um, and that's what we're doing. And it's, it's great. It's rewarding work. It's important work. Um, yeah. And look, again, you know, if there's anyone really keen on this area, you can contact us, get involved because we're always looking for young, you know, well, not young, but just talent and passion. Um, but uh, so, yes, I think it should go back to med schools. That's a process and it's slowly, you know, it's, I, I do think it's going to happen. Um, there is um, the hope of setting up postgraduate training soon, like masters in lifestyle medicine, mm. um, and we're, we're working with a few people on that. Can't really announce anything right now, but the, you know, it will come. Um, but people can go to us at lifestylemedicine.org.au and they can suss out the training there. Yep. In the meantime, and they know you can you can still be in medicine even um, and yep. do some of this stuff. And just briefly, I know that you touched a lot on it's about bringing together all the evidence base um, to do with lifestyle medicine, but does it cover anything to do with the skills of, you know, providing that form of, you know, counselling or uh, motivational interviewing? Yeah. Do you guys cover any of that? Well, that's the biggest part of it. Yeah. Okay. So, so, yeah. So there's always the what and the how. So the what is what is lifestyle medicine and what's the evidence, right? Mm. So there's that you know, 80% of diabetes reversible or whatever. The, um, but then there's um, the how. And that's the, that's the more, like I said, that's the art of what we do. And, yes, so definitely provide training in health coaching, communication skills and behavior change techniques and that sort of stuff. And so that, that all that stuff we've got, we've got, there are actually diplomas available in that sort of area. And so, so they can go as far as they'd like to go with that, you know. Um, and we're developing right like now and should be out fairly soon a communication module and i haven't come across any university or anything some universities do do communication you know in their unis to some degrees like some motivational interviewing for example but this goes much more into it right. and you know to the point of things like nudging and a whole raft of sort of behavioral yep. marketing techniques that businesses use to make mm. people buy things yep. let's start using those for good yes <laughs> and you know to improve their health you know and one little example of that would be having an apple on your desk or a bike helmet um, on your desk or your, or your running shoes on the floor. Right. So this is, you know, nudging, right? So you're not even mentioning them, but just having them there are icebreakers. People say, oh, so you're going for a run. Yeah, I am. I love running. It's awesome. And so, oh, you go for a run. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Do you ride much? No, I don't get out that much. I was like, hey, look, that'd be really good. Actually, you know, you've got high cholesterol. That'd be really good for you. So, you know, it's a way of like breaking, you know, building bridges without even trying. So there's verbal and nonverbal communication. And there's a whole science to that too, which is fun. Yeah, and then so there's that. There's the how in the sense of how one-to-one -one we clinicians communicate and, mm. and uh, relay. But then there's also the model itself, right? And this is a very fun time to be involved, especially this area in lifestyle medicine, but in medicine in general, is that the way we deliver care is very different. So the, right. the old way of one-to-one -one medicine is important, yep. um, but incomplete. 
Right. And so, you know, we, we, we've been pioneering for some years now and we won NGO of the year, I think in 2018 for our work in the space of shared medical appointments. So getting, you know, six or seven or 10 people with the same condition in the one room together with the doctor and a nurse and spending an hour collectively with that whole group, because oh, wow. it's a good chance that you're going to say one thing to one patient and then the next person comes in with diabetes and you're going to say the same thing to them. Oh. So why don't, instead of them four people getting a 15 minutes in an hour, why don't you get seven people, eight people to have an hour with their doctor? And oh, so, yeah. It, yeah, it makes, and you actually still prescribe, you check their results, you know, they yep. sign confidentiality agreements, you know, that sort of stuff. But it's, you know, it's a much better way of doing it. And then there's online platforms. So what stuff, some of the stuff we've been doing in society are things like, you know, usual, you know, usual general practice stuff or usual specialist stuff yep. and then having online platforms. So maybe, you know, they can go, you can go to my website, for example, the gpshow.com and there's a bunch of stuff there on healthy eating and, you know, stuff that I've recorded a couple of years ago. Mm. Um, the patients can just go and watch in between appointments and knowledge up, you know, improve yep. their health literacy. Or there are closed Facebook groups where the doctors actually run them mm. and they'll do a weekly Facebook live session and talk about the issues they saw with their patients. Yep. Patients can share resources resources and share documents and the, and the doctor can facilitate that and that's the key thing that's missing in social media today yeah. is expert facilitation you yes. you know it's great yes. people are connecting yes but then they share crap and yes. so if you've got someone come on and goes hey guys this is this is kind of crap for these four reasons this is how i approach it as a doctor go, yeah. oh wow that's why you're my doctor etc so you know there's a partnership that starts to occur so these are all different models and i could again go on about different models yeah but it, it's changing and evolving medical mm. practice and that's exciting so there's yeah. lots of reasons to be excited that is really cool because i know for a fact that at the moment there's so many non-medical or non-health experts they're not even actually experts you know doing these things already and and with too much success because sometimes their advice aren't exactly accurate or uh, safe so you know doctors should really be jumping on board and you know have their voice and say in all this to make sure that you know our patients stay safe totally yeah we we got a reasonable and sensible practice has to guide the conversation and not just that we come along as dictators and tell people what should and shouldn't happen. That's definitely not what we should do. What we should, exp- what we should try to do is explain our reasoning. You know, we develop things as, you know, GPs in particular, but all, all, all medical people, obviously, but GPs, we have to develop very quick clinical reasoning. How do we come to a decision on treatment and diagnosis in about 10 minutes? And, um, and, you know, obviously I'm saying every specialty surgeons have got to do that in their own way mm. and everyone has to do that. But patients often don't understand how we got to that conclusion. Yeah. And because they don't understand that, they don't agree with us. Yeah. But if they understood it, if they understood how we appraise information, how we criticise evidence, how, why we reach the conclusion that this is the diagnosis or this is the best management, almost every time they agree with me when I actually explain it. Yes. And so if we actually did that publicly, right, yeah. in, a, in that sort of social public forum, Yeah. The results are great and we've, we've shown that the results work. So it's, um, it's kind of the way to go. I certainly will be signing up for a fellowship <laughs> in lifestyle medicine I'm, and I'm sure a lot of junior doctors listening will be too. Uh, now, last question. Um, can you please name one to two things or can be more? Some of my guests like to share a lot more. Uh, mm. that's I think I've shared sane, enough. <laughs> that's keeping you sane currently in this crazy busy life of yours. Oh, look, just all the stuff I've already mentioned. Like it, it's not, you know, I just finished a podcast with a, with a filmmaker called Shannon Harvey and um, before coming on here. And 
she, you know, we open the podcast where she's, there is no secret. There is no one ingredient that fixes you. You know what I mean? And that's a, that's a myth that needs to be busted because the expectations are too high. They're unrealistic. Yeah. Like if I go to bed at 1030, I feel great the next day. If I go to bed at 1130, I'm a wreck. Right. Mm. And so, and I'm too young to, for that, but that's the way it is. But it, and if I eat bad food, I'll feel it the next day. If I don't yeah. exercise, my back starts aching. But if I exercise, I feel, you know, no pain yeah. and I, you know, jumping from tree to tree. So it's like, it's not one thing. It's just do those things yeah. and um, just slowly but surely build them into your life. Yeah. And the more you benefit from them, the more you will want to share that and you will do it more as a doctor. And the evidence again shows that, that the people who, the doctors and the health professionals who look after themselves recommend these things more. You know, I, I just say just, um, just keep doing what makes you happy and what makes you come alive. Yeah. And I just want to also bring it back to something you said earlier. Essentially, what people need to do are those things, but they can have their own versions of those things. So everyone will say, for example, you don't like running, but another running might work for another person. So I have found that, um, you know, over this past two years, I can't believe my podcast is already two years old, um, that I've interviewed all my guests, that everyone has had a slightly different variation of answers, but similar themes, like mainly the things that you've already covered. Mm, yeah, well, congrats on the two years. Thank you. Um, <laughs> but yes, that's right. I mean, it, it, it's common sense in a way, but, uh, you know, um, there's still a lot more to it. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today, Dr. Sam Manger. No worries. My pleasure. And thanks for all your good work. Thank you. If you really liked that episode, please don't forget to leave a review on iTunes to help a sister out. And don't forget to subscribe to our email list so that you never miss an episode. 